0: Well, good morning. It's good to be back. I've uh, been on vacation for a couple of weeks and I uh, would commend that sort of thing to those of you that don't take them. They're uh, very restful. I'm rested anyway. You look like you're bushed, but uh, I'm feeling really good about things. It's uh, just good to be back and get started on a new year. We've really enjoyed having Herman here I uh, just wish more of you could have gotten to know him uh on a personal level we just had some great times together learned a great deal from him and we hope that he's uh profited from his time here he had some really memorable experiences Terry Pape and I took him out into the desert to show him the great american desert and uh drove him down to uh bruno canyon and about 15 or 20 miles out in the middle of the desert, I broke down. So uh, he really saw more of the desert than he intended to that day. And he'll have many uh, choice memories to take back with him. If someone were to ask me what is the number one social problem in America today, I would just have to say divorce, not uh, inflation or unemployment. But uh, divorce, it's a problem really of, of epidemic proportion. The last set of statistics I saw indicate that one out of every 1.5 marriages today in the United States end in divorce. And if the present trend continues, it will be one out of one.
1: For every marriage
0: contracted, there will be a divorce. Or perhaps what is a more frightening statistic, if this congregation held true, or if this congregation were analogous to the population at large within 10 years 40% of us would be uh, divorced now that's frightening and it's something which we as christians have got to uh, we've got we've got to decide what do we believe about divorce i would have to say that i within the past 2 years since i've been here i have seen more christian homes break up than I ever saw over a comparable period while I was in California. You know, we, we can say all we want to about these wicked Californians, but uh, I really have seen more Christian homes break up here than I ever saw back there. Now, I don't for a minute think that homes are any in any worse shape than they were a generation or so ago. I don't think they are. I just think that the results are more obvious. I uh, someone, someone described the marriages of a generation ago, somewhat like a medieval uh, uh, cathedral, which was helpful to me. As you know, during the Middle Ages, they developed a a style of architecture which enabled them to open up the inside of these cathedrals so they would have unobstructed views. And uh, these structures were supported from the outside by flying buttresses. There were external supports, no internal supports. And I think that's uh, somewhat like the marriages of a generation or so ago. They may have been very empty internally, but there were enough social strictures that they were held together. But that's no longer true. The social sanctions against divorce are being removed, and the buildings are tumbling down all around us, all around our ears. And in some cases, it's our own homes that are being affected so we as christians simply have to make up our minds what do we believe about divorce now the passage that we're going to look at this morning deals with this issue it's matthew 19 verse 12 verses you'll notice something new has been added uh i have aged considerably over the last two weeks and i had to uh, buy some glasses here to see with you know what they say quarterbacks never throw passes to boys that wear glasses but uh I'm a bit beyond that anyway. Chapter 9, 19, excuse me. The passage begins with uh, geographical reference. It came about that when Jesus had finished these words, He departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed Him, and He healed them there. Uh, In in one sentence, Matthew passes over a great deal of material which you will find in other Gospels, in the Gospel of John, chapters 7 through 11, and in the Gospel of Luke, chapters 10 through 18, there is a description of an extended ministry which Jesus had across the Jordan in what today is the Kingdom of, of Jordan, on the east side of the Jordan River, in a region which in those days was called Perea. There was one rather quick trip to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, where he instructed uh, the uh Uh, the citizens of Jerusalem. And then he went back to Perea to spend more time with his disciples. That was the focus of his ministry. But as always, the Lord drew crowds. And when he drew crowds, he drew fire from his detractors. And in this case, it was the Pharisees who raised the question that's given to us in verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him, testing him, and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? Now you'll recognize that's a that's the perennial problem, uh, the perennial question. That's the question we're still asking today. What are the grounds or the legal uh, bases for, for divorce? Or are there any at all? Now, you'll notice, according to Matthew's description here, that the question was not really a question to get answered. It was designed to put Jesus on the spot. It was a challenge. They wanted to test him. They wanted to discredit him uh, before his, his followers. So it was not an honest question at all. They wanted to make him look foolish. And, uh, so there was no real substance behind the question. But the Lord, uh, Himself does, does answer. Now, uh, the question that they raised is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for, quote, any cause at all? Close quote. And in order to understand what, what the Pharisees are talking about here, we need to know something of the background of this, uh, of this statement. There was in Jesus' day, or shortly before Jesus' day, a, uh, a rabbi by the name of Hillel who had a very lax view of marriage. Uh, fallen nature being what it is. People were, were very responsive to his teaching and uh, his views on marriage uh, won the day. Uh, he was quite influential. He believed that a man could divorce his wife for any reason, whatever, if she was displeasing to him, if she uh, uh, argued with him in public, if she uh, kept an untidy house, if she burned the bagels, uh, if she became uh, unpleasant in any way, then she could be discarded at at will. She could just be cast aside. Now, I need to understand that the Jews of Jesus' day, in theory, in theory, had a very high view of marriage. Uh, The Aramaic term that's used uh, for marriage in all rabbinic literature is kishin. It means holy or sanctified. They had much the same view that the Roman Catholic theologians have uh, somewhat that, that, that marriage is a sacrament, that sort of thing. In theory, they had a very high view of marriage. But in fact, they had a very low view of marriage. They, the, the, the rabbinic writings are just filled with pejorative references, derogatory references to women. Women were chattel. Women were junk. They were worth nothing. They, they, they were possessions to be discarded at, at will. And uh, one of the rabbis who held this particularly low view of marriage was Hillel, and his writings were quite influential. Now, there was one passage of Scripture which the rabbis turned to again and again for their understanding of marriage. It's Deuteronomy 24, and it would help us, I think, in understanding Jesus' words if we would go back uh, to that section of Scripture. Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Old Testament. Moses' book and his preparation for Israel... Uh, in view of their uh, conquest of the land. Let's read it. The first four verses of chapter 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her away from his, ho- from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter husband turns against her, and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For that is an, is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now the key term, at least the, the storm center of the debate, was the reference in verse 1 to some decency. And uh, Shammai said that uh, Shammai was a more conservative rabbi of this time, very conservative, and his views of marriage were very strict. He interpreted that term to refer to some kind of sexual misconduct, adultery. If, therefore, she was adulteress, she could be put away. On the other hand, Hillel and, and the more liberal rabbis interpreted that term in its literal meaning of shamefulness. The word actually means shameful or disgracing. And uh, they said, well, that, that refers to anything. Such as burning the bagels, or keeping an untidy house, or she whatever, if she casts uh, her husband in a bad light, if she disgraces him, if she causes him to look bad in in public, then he can put her away. And it was this view that uh, was upheld. Now, actually, both of these men misunderstood the passage, and I never quite understood why they didn't they didn't understand it because it's not all that difficult to uh, interpret. If you read it carefully, you'll discover that the first three verses are all a conditional clause which is completed in verse 4. Moses is saying, if this sort of thing happens, then you're to do this. He's not at all condoning divorce. He's not even commanding divorce. He's simply saying, if you treat a woman like that, you can't have her back. That's the point. Women are not junk. You can't treat them like that. You can't discard them and throw them away. They're not yo-yos. You can't throw them away and then get them back. You see, the whole point of this legislation was to protect the rights of women. Women are precious things. They're valuable. You can't treat a woman that way. But if you do, if you do, you can't have her back. See? Now, that's the point of the passage. And this was what, what was behind the question that the uh, Pharisees raised. On what basis, for what cause can we divorce our wife? Now, let's go back to Matthew again and, and see the Lord's answer. It's very wise. What the Lord does is go right back to Scripture. He doesn't quote Shemai. He doesn't quote any other secular source. He goes right to the Word of God. Jesus answered in verse 4 and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? I always think of Dr. Jack Mitchell when I read that statement. It's frequent in Jesus' lips. Haven't you fellows ever read the Bible? He's, don't you read the Bible? Don't you know what the Bible says? And you see what the Lord is doing? He's not appealing to any secular source. That's the sort of thing that we do. We quote the Bible teachers that we know and, and the social scientists and the marriage counselors. But the Lord goes right back to Scripture. And he says, you fellows ought to read the Bible. You don't read it. He goes back beyond uh, the present debate. The debate he was having with the Pharisees, he goes back beyond Matthew Deuteronomy 24, he goes all the way back to Genesis. He says, here's where these great foundational principles are to be found. And if you go back there, you'll discover the truth that will make your marriage what God intended it to be. In fact, if you notice carefully, what he says is, God created and said. You see that? Verse 4. He answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said. The one who created said. You say, no, Moses said that. Well, he did. If you go back to Genesis 2.24, that's Moses' commentary on the creation of man and woman and the marriage that's established as a result of that creation. Moses says those things. But the Lord said, no, no, that's God who said that. He equates God's words with Moses' words. God, the one who conceived the idea of marriage, his idea in the first place, he wrote the instruction manual to go along with it. Now, it just makes sense that the man who engineers a, a product understands it best and, and can write the best manual. Uh, a few weeks ago, Ray Cookingham was showing, showing me around Hewlett-Packard. And my, they have all these amazing things that go whir and whiz and, and uh, shiny things that go around, and I was pressing my nose against one of those hermetically sealed rooms, you know, looking through the glass window, watching these people in their white suits, running around doing all sorts of wizardry. And it's just a remarkable experience. And uh, Ray was reeling off facts and figures and facts. I didn't have any idea what he's talking about, but I nodded at, at the appropriate times. And Just imagine, and this would stretch anyone's imagination, just imagine that Ray would say to me after that uh, little cook's tour, he would say, we, David, we have decided that we want you to write the manual that accompanies this unit when we send it out, the maintenance manual. And uh, I thought, sure. And so I stand there day after day and look through the window and I watch this thing being built. And, and then I write my manual and it would go something like this. That little gadget there on the end that's yellow is fastened to this uh, gizmo over here and it makes that thing thingamajig turn around here at the end. Or if I really wanted to know you, I'd say that uh, the spood shaft is connected to the spifflicator. But the fact is, I wouldn't know anything about that machine. I wouldn't have the foggiest idea how to maintain it, or what it, even what it's for. I just say I don't know what those things do. The best person to describe the product is the man who made it. And that's why we need to go back to scripture to find out how to make a marriage go. You see? You can get some helpful information out of secular marriage manuals to some extent, to the extent that it's rooted in Scripture. And beyond that point, most men, apart from Revelation, really do not understand marriage. And the advice that they they give can be extremely misleading. And therefore, we need to pay attention to the manual. Now, uh, you'll notice what Jesus does. He goes back to Genesis and he makes some observations. He quotes uh, sections from Genesis 2. In the beginning, he made them male and female. That's the first thing that we need to know about marriage. Men and women are different. Now, that's something you learn very early in life. They're just different. Women don't look like men. Uh, they're not a lot nicer to look at. Much prettier, nicer lines. They smell better than men. They just basically men are they're just different. That's all. That's one of the first things you notice when you're a kid growing up. Heard about two little boys that were uh, discussing their ages and one said, I'm five. How old are you? And the little boy said, I don't know, I'm either four or five and the five year old said, Do you like girls? And he said, No, you're four. That's <coughs> just uh just one of the things that uh, that you observe. And it's one of those things that begins very early in life. The differences originate in birth. They're not culturally determined primarily. They're not societal. They begin at birth. Everyone knows that little girls are made out of sugar and spice and everything nice. And little boys are made out of rats and snails and puppy dog tails. It's not a very scientific description, but it's true. They're just different. It's the way God made them. They're fundamentally different. And if you have any question about whether God meant you to be a man or a woman, just look at yourself in the mirror. And if you see a man's body there, that's what you are. God didn't make a mistake. You don't need to have a sex change operation. That's what you are. And if you see a woman there, that's what you are. You're a woman. You don't need to be confused. There's a radical difference and a uniqueness about each sex. God created mankind with a polarity of sexes that's just that's just the way things are it's god's intention it's right and it's proper we're different and each person adds to the relationship something unique and there can't be any blurring of those distinctions we lose something when there is the old testament is consistent in its view of the polarity of sexes for instance in the old testament uh, there's a reference to uh, kind of clothing that men and women are to wear it's very clear men are to wear men's clothing and women are to wear women's clothing now the present day application of that principle is not that women are prohibited from wearing slacks and men can't wear kilts that's not that's not the point the point is that men are to be men and women are to be women and we should never forget it someone once told me that uh, Montana was the place where men are men and so are the women. But I don't believe that. I've met some Montana women and they're lovely ladies. But if that were true, that would be a distortion of of truth. Men are intended to be men. And women are intended to be women. That's the way God made us. Each has a unique part to play in the relationship. Now I have a kind of a half baked idea, at least Carolyn thinks it's half baked, and I'm going to share it with you. I don't this isn't gospel, you don't have to believe it. But I just want you to consider it. Okay? From studying scripture, I really believe that each member of a marriage relationship has a a bit has a lion's share, perhaps, to play. In helping the other person grow up to be what they were intended to be. In other words, Carolyn has a major role in helping me to be a man. And I have a major role in helping her to be a woman. Now, sometimes, of course, the whole thing breaks down and we're, in, any, in an ultimate sense, we're dependent upon God to be what we ought to be. And if the other person fails to fulfill their role, then we can be what we're supposed to be by depending upon God. He becomes our husband or he becomes our wife or whatever it is we need. But in the normal course of things, I really believe we can help our partner become what God intends him to be. We have a major responsibility. Now, let me tell you how I think that works. Women, I believe, need security to grow up to full womanhood. They need a nest. They need a place where they know that they're loved and cared for. And that's when a woman really blossoms. A lot of women become cold and hard and unloving because they're not loved. They're not secure. They're insecure. And their way of handling that insecurity is to be defensive, keep people out at arm's length. But if they feel secure, they're so much more warm and outgoing and womanly. And I believe, gentlemen, that it is our responsibility as husbands to make them feel secure. That's why the Bible says, and this is really about all it says to us men, is husbands, love your wives. The uh, verb tense is, uh, is a progressive idea. Keep on loving them, even when they're ornery, even when they're cold, even when they're irritable, when they're hostile, when they're ugly. Just keep on loving them. Just keep on loving them. You know, the old adage, hell knows no fury like a woman's burn. And when a woman, when a woman doesn't uh, feel loved apart from the grace of God, she can get downright mean. You guys ever walk into the kitchen and uh, you feel the chill? I see the elbows flying. I know what the... Uh, man, it's the deep freeze is on, the frost is on the walls, you know, and you say, Hey, uh, what's wrong? He says, nothing. Ah, come on, what did I do? Nothing. Most guys don't understand. They'll fly into a rage. You know, crazy woman. Who can understand them? Or they'll go read a book or go work in the yard or something. And all they're doing is confirming what their wife believes all along, that the guy doesn't really love me. You see, what happens, I think, is that uh, through some event, real or imagined, she's come to the conclusion that you don't love her anymore. Maybe it's something you did 20 years ago that she remembers, But she has come to the conclusion that you don't love her. You didn't call her that day or whatever. Or she just doesn't feel pretty. Got a zit on her nose. And, and she can't understand how anybody could love her today, and so she just feels insecure. And you see, that's that's when we need to move to meet that need. To show her love. Because when she's surrounded by love and she's in an environment where she knows that regardless of what she looks like or what she does or how she behaves, she's loved, she'll grow. She'll become a woman. That's why I say, gentlemen, that it's largely our responsibility. Now, on the other side of the question, I think men grow best in an environment of insecurity. Now, here's where Carolyn thinks I'm half baked I really believe it. Men need and love a challenge. And without a challenge, they just don't grow. That's why Scripture says to a woman, be be subject, be in subjection to your husband. In other words, don't take away from him the responsibility of running the house. Don't make decisions for him. Force him into a position where he has to stand out there against the assaults of the world. And, and feel the insecurity of that relationship and rely, of that situation and rely upon the Lord and He'll grow to manhood. Don't smother Him. Don't mother Him. Don't take away the decisions from Him. Don't second guess Him. Don't criticize Him. Let Him make decisions. And most men will grow up into that kind of relationship. They love a challenge. Well, John Barnes and I were flying up to McCall last Wednesday on a little sort of a quasi-business trip and and it was a real rough day. The wind was blowing like crazy. The plane was bouncing all over the sky. And, and as we were coming in to make our approach, the tower radios in. They say uh, uh, there's a crosswind blowing at such such a speed. It's really rough. Difficult to get in. Watch what you're doing. It made me feel real secure. And uh, so we we make the final approach. John starts in. You know, puts the flaps down and starts to power the thing in. And just when he was committed, just at that point, this kind of shaky voice with a crack in it comes over the the radio, and it's uh, apparently it was the pilot that had landed right in front of us, and he had bounced all over the place. and And he says, "Man, watch that final approach; it is bad." So I took another cinch on the old seat belt, checked to see if there are any unconfessed sins, and and John blasts on in, you know, and the thing bounces around, skids off the side of the runway, and. And he's taxiing around and back toward the uh, hangar, and he says, Man! He says, I just love a challenge. You really grow when you have a challenge, don't you? I noticed he was perspiring a lot, which didn't make me feel too good. But uh, anyway, I know that's true. I know that's true. We need it. In order to be men, we need the challenge of being leaders. So don't, don't prohibit us from being the leaders that God has intended us to be. Don't take over. Don't be the head of the home. Let us accept that responsibility. And it will grow up to full manhood. And if we do our part and love you, you'll grow up to full womanhood. And then within that polarity of sexes, as man, fully man, fully woman, the marriage will be what God intends it to be. Each will add to the marriage the, the element that's necessary. Now let's go on with our observation. Jesus says, for this reason, in verse 5, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. For what reason? For the reason given in verse 4, he created them male and female. In other words, God created one man and one woman, and he said that's what's required for marriage. For this reason, because there's a man, And a woman. They'll leave, the man will leave mother and father and cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Note he did not say because there are two men or because there are two women or two women and one man or two men and one woman. With one line, he canceled out polygamous marriages though they were permitted from time to time in the old testament they were never sanctioned by god that was never god's original intention what's portrayed in genesis in the creation story is god's original intention and secondly with one line he canceled out cancels out so-called gay marriages they simply do not exist that's god that's not god's intention for life his ultimate goal is one man and one woman together for life And together they form the primary relationship that transcends all others. A man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Leave and cleave. Those are the the key words. Leave mother and father. You break up one relationship, a blood relationship, and you form another relationship that's stronger than any blood tie. Your relationship with your wife takes precedence over your relationship to your mother or father or your children or any other friend. It's the most intimate of all relationships. And it ought to be kept that way. That means that we as parents need to stay out of our children's marriages. We don't have any business in them. We can give counsel if they ask. Hopefully, they can benefit from the experience that we've gained. But we must not intrude. That's their marriage. It's not ours. We need to get out. Never get in between our children and his or her mate. not our business. Let's concentrate on our own marriages. and Let our children under God develop theirs. And if you're a, a couple, a young couple, whose parents are beginning to intrude, you, as the man in the house, may have to go and talk to your parents or her parents and lovingly and graciously but very firmly say, this is our marriage. We've got to make it go before God on our own. You've got to stay out of it if your daughter ever comes home, tells you what a rat her husband is, you sit her down and you say, he may be. But you've got to go back and make that thing go. You must not stand between your children and their mate. Scripture is very clear. This isn't some general advice that I'm giving. It's not good counsel. It's a revelation from God. Stay out. Scripture says, Leave mother and father and cleave to your wife the Hebrew term from which this Greek translation is derived means to stick to her, glue, be glued to her. Stick to her like a mustard plaster. Now, that invades against everything you hear today from our pop philosophers, rock singers and whatnot. You know, to just check out. the marriage doesn't work, bail out. Pick up the key, please. Go out the back, Jack. Make another plan, man. Get yourself free. Isn't that what you hear? All around. If it doesn't work, get out. Find somebody else. But God says, leave and quit. And He says, the two shall be one. Now, I have to confess that I have over the years misinterpreted this passage, and I've taught it wrongly. I always thought that what He was referring to there was the process of becoming one in marriage. But I didn't read the text like the Pharisees. Because the next verse really explains what he means, consequently. They are, not are becoming, but they are, no more two, but one. What therefore, God has joined together. Let no man separate. You see that? I used to say, nothing magic happens down here when I pronounce you husband and wife. I don't shout shazam and you turn into some kind of new critter. Uh, Not at all. No, no. But but I think something magic does happen in the sense that God joins you. Your inner commitment, your outward proclamation of that commitment, the sex act which joins you, all of that is a part of God's plan to make you one. And it's a unity that God creates. He makes it. You're one. Whether you like it or not. The unity is there. You just have to work it out. Over a period of time. And what I want you to notice this morning is where the Lord has been taking us all the way along because he says, Consequently, given the nature of marriage, given all the the above, Consequently, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Do you hear that? That's not my advice. That's not even advice at all. That's orders from headquarters. From supreme headquarters. That comes from God. That's a command. Let no one separate. In other words, divorce is a sin. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Divorce is a sin. But yet, you see, that's... That's the line of thinking that Christians are being fed over and over again by the world. If it doesn't work, bail out. That's the way you resolve your marital conflict. Find somebody else. Get rid of that jerk. He's never done anything for you anyway. Find someone else who will fulfill you. God says, no, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Get in there and work on it. Hang in there. Be tough. Endure. Make the thing go no matter what. Divorce is not an option. It's not the way out. Get going on making that relationship. Everything that that you want it to be. There will be rough times. There will be hard times. That man may not be what you want him to be or that woman. doesn't matter. You say, well, if I go back and work on it, then that's going to cause me a lot of suffering and pain. That's the name of the game. Jesus said, If we follow him, we have to take up our cross daily and follow me. And as we've seen, the cross is the place of death itself. It hurts to hang on a cross. Sure, it'll hurt. Sure, it'll hurt. It'll cost. And maybe that individual will never come around. There are no guarantees in this life that our marriage partner will repent or even respond. But there are guarantees that we can be what God's called us to be in that relationship and he will fulfill us in every way regardless of what our, our mate does. To me, one of the most encouraging passages in the New Testament is Paul's words in 2 Timothy where he says, In my first defense, no one stood with me. Everybody left me. He's talking about his preliminary uh, hearing before Nero. Nevertheless, he says, The Lord stood by me, and he delivered me from the lion's mouth, and I know that he will deliver me from every evil deed. And we say, great! Paul's going to be let out of prison. Do you know what happened? He stood before Nero. Nero condemned to death. He chopped off his head. And that may be your faith. There are no guarantees. What Paul was talking about was that he would be able to stand before Nero with poise and with courage. He wouldn't chicken out. He wouldn't recant. He would be God's man in that situation. And that's what the Lord promises. You go back into that relationship and you determine by God's grace you're doggedly determined to make that thing go, God will give you the grace to do it. Some of you need to go home, frankly. You need to go back to your mate and try to put that thing back together. That's not my advice. That comes from God. Well, the Pharisees think they've got Him now. Put His foot in His mouth. They say to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate and divorce her? See, what they, what they presume is that there's a discrepancy between what Jesus is saying and what Moses said. Jesus, very clear what Jesus is saying. Don't get a divorce. There's no cause for divorce in the initial plan. And they say, well, then you, you've got to take it up with Moses. Moses commanded you, commanded us to divorce our wives. Jesus says, no, you just haven't read the text. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. You know know why people get divorces? Not because their partner is impossible to live with. It's because their hearts are hard. That's the only reason. Behind every divorce is a hard heart. Somebody in the relationship is unwilling to soften their heart. A hard heart is a rebellious heart. A heart that won't submit to God's will. That won't receive God's grace. That wants to go it alone. Do its own thing. Live its own life. That's a hard heart. And if you want to know why people get divorces, that's why. Somebody's heart. There isn't any reason for it, apart from that hardness of heart. And I say to you, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another commits adultery. The term that he uses here for immorality is the word fornication. That's the general, more inclusive word for sexual misconduct of all sorts of, of all types can refer to homosexuality or bestiality or fornication or adultery. His point is, what the only thing that really breaks the union is when someone decides that they want to establish a sexual union with someone else. And you say, now, wait a minute. Does that mean I mean I can't divorce my wife just because she's hard to live with? Because she burns the bagels? Because she isn't as attractive as she used to be? Or she isn't loving. Or she yells at the kids. Or yells at me. Does that mean I can't divorce my husband because he's not a good provider or a good husband? Or he spends all of his time running around in the desert in his four-wheel drive vehicle or fishing or hunting? I mean, I can't can't discard him for that reason? Jesus says, no. No. God joined you. And the only thing that breaks that marriage bond is if one or the other in that relationship determine that they're going to start another relationship and consummate it sexually, that's it. Unless that occurs, there's no freedom to gain a divorce or to remarry. And the disciples understood. They understood all too clearly. They say to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry Literally, what they say, if this is the cause, and they use the same term that's translated in verse 3, cause, and the question that that the Pharisees ask, if this is the cause, that is, there is no cause, it's better not to marry. If I'm stuck with this woman for the rest of my life, I'm better off single. (laughs) Jesus says, no, no. Not all men can accept this statement. But only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Not everyone can accept it. Some people may be fortified in a special way, prepared by God to live a single life. May have to for various reasons. Or may choose to, but that's not the norm. God's norm is that one man He married the one woman through life for better or for worse. And you say, well, but he's a lot worse than I took him for. But that's all right. He's yours. That's the man God gave you. Adam tried to get out of that responsibility by saying to the Lord, the woman you gave me made me do it. The Lord wouldn't let him get away with it. That's your partner for life. And as men, you need to understand her. We can't get off by saying, I can't understand women. That's not permitted to us. Because Peter says, live with your wives according to understanding. You need to know what she's like, what she needs, what she is. Heard about a night uh, class in accounting that was offered for women, perhaps at BSU and and it was, uh, in the uh, schedule, it was listed as a course in accounting for women, 101. And some wag wrote across the page, Friend, there is no accounting for women. <clears throat> but there is. There is. We can't, we can't get away with that. We need to understand what they need. What they need is security. And we need to provide the love that will help them to grow up to full maturity. But you say, she isn't responding. That's all right. That's all right. As C.S. Lewis puts it, there's really only one person in the world for which we are responsible, and that is ourselves. We have to be what God has called us to be, even if they're not. And your responsibility as a woman is to submit to your man so he can grow up the manhood. Let him have the reins. Let him lead so he can grow. Pray for him. Help him. Encourage him. Give him counsel. Hopefully he'll listen to you. But let him be a man. And when you have that sense of inner commitment and and a knowledge of the fact that God has tied you together, then it gives you something to work on. And the thing doesn't just fly apart at the first argument. You're committed to each other. No matter what. And it'll go. Now I want to leave behind four comments that I think follow from what we said this morning. The first is if you, is this. If you're contemplating divorce, don't. Period. It's a sin. Scripture says so. Malachi says, God hates divorce. Now notice he doesn't say God hates divorcees. That's an important distinction to make. He doesn't. He loves divorcees, but he hates divorce. Because of what it does to people. The radical tearing apart of two lives. God has made one flesh out of them and they're ripped apart. And and those of you who have gone through the experience know the the inestimable pain and suffering that goes along with a divorce and the children who are the innocent, somewhat innocent uh, bystanders and victims. So if you're thinking about it, don't. It's not an option for us as Christians. We've got a resource. We don't have to go the world's way. We've got a better way of handling marital conflict. We can resolve it. We can have a happy home. That's the best solution to marital conflict I know. So if you're thinking about divorce, don't. Forget it. Now, there may be an occasion where a a temporary separation is necessary to clear the air. But I would say keep it short. Two to three weeks at the most. And then get back together to work at it with a dogged determination to see it go. Secondly, if you've been divorced and there is any possibility of reconciliation with your mate, go and be reconciled. And it may be impossible. If you've remarried or if your mate is remarried, God does not want you to destroy or disturb another marriage to go back and rebuild your, your former relationship. That's over. It's done. But if there is any possibility of reconciliation, go and be reconciled. Because that? it's God's intention That you join again with that first mate and make that thing go. One woman and one man together for life. That's the norm. It may mean that you have to break up an existing love relationship. That's tough. It's easy for me to stand here and say that. The only person in this world I love is Carolyn, in that sense. and It's hard for me to understand. Uh, to be in your shoes. But I know it's tough. And you may have to break up what is a very precious and secure relationship to go back and be reconciled to your mate if that's possible. And if there's no hard heart there and if there's a desire to make the marriage go, that's what we need to do. Thirdly, if there's no possibility of reconciliation or restoration, you're already married. You need to commit yourself to making this marriage go, knowing that God will give you all the resources that you need to make it go if we are truly repentant of our sin in the past. It always disturbs me when people say, Oh, well, you know, God's forgiving. I can just sin. And uh, it doesn't make a bit of difference. And I'm forgiven now, so I can start all over again. That's only true up to a point. What we need to understand is that sin is 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 a dreadful thing inflicts terrible harm on people. And what God wants is repentance. Genuine repentance. A change of mind about our former way of life and a willingness to repudiate it and put it away and turn our back on it and and go in a new new direction with God. Make our, our new marriage. Go! Make it work. No matter what it costs. And then for those of you who have been victimized in some way or another, you are the innocent victims of a divorce. Your husband or wife just walked off and left you and remarried. And To the extent that any of us are ever innocent in a situation like that, you were victimized. Then know that you're not a second-class citizen. God will restore and heal and fulfill you in every way. It's true of any of you who have divorces in your past who now can't go back and rebuild your lives. Just know that you can have a life of usefulness. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. God will restore you to a life of fruitfulness just as he would an ex-murderer or ex-liar, ex-homosexual, or whatever. You can go on. Power. Make the kind of marriage that you want to see God produce. One of the really uh, great pictures, I think, of family life is found in the book of Exodus in the story of, of the plagues when the Egyptians felt the full effect of the plague of darkness. And Moses says that their homes were dark. It was so dark you couldn't even see your hand in front of your face. But he says there was light in the homes of the Israelites. Now that's what ought to be taking place in the world around us when homes are flying apart and there's darkness, and no one knows the way out. No one understands how we can rebuild our marriages. There can be light in our homes. We have the book. The one who designed the product wrote the book. We know the way out. Let's let's act in obedience to his word. And let's do this. Let's take a few moments as a body to pray for one another. Uh, Truth uh, proclaimed is often just words, but it's prayer that translates words into action, and we all need the support and encouragement of the rest of the body and the Spirit of God to act in obedience to this truth. So let's spend a few moments just as as a family praying together for one another. Stand, if you will, and and pray with volume so we can follow along with you. And let's uh, spend just uh, four or five minutes uh, in intercession for us. Uh, and for our family. Father, I'm reminded this morning of one of Fisher's songs. You ask a lot. But what we've quite forgot is that you always ask us more than we can give. And uh, we uh, we have to understand that these things are far beyond our capabilities. They require God Himself to behave in this way. We thank You that You're our resource. And therefore, nothing is impossible. With Paul, we can say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We can learn to abound. We can learn to be abased. We can be humiliated. We can be exalted. We can go through any and all circumstances because we know you're able. Teach us to count on you this morning and to rely upon your strength. Put aside our own tendency to act out of our our resources and rely upon you. And we ask that there would be continual healing in our homes. Give us that determination to make them go. And give us opportunities to share this truth, both by example and by our words with our neighbors and those around us that are struggling and hurting and in such desperate need. Thank you that you make it all possible. In Jesus' name, Amen.